I went out walking through streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you I went wandering from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch the show on television, they can go to www.hotm, that's heartofthematter.tv, and watch it from anywhere in the world, live streaming video. Of course, that's a place where you can watch the archives as well of 130-plus shows many topics full of entertaining stuff check it out and if you can't get to a television set and you live in the salt lake city vast salt lake city area tune to heart of the matter on am 820 the truth k-u-t-r the truth relatively new uh am radio station powerful 50,000 watts they have great programming even if you don't listen to heart of the matter which airs at the same time as we're airing here tonight uh, you go to that station and hear some of the best uh, radio uh, teachers and preachers in the world. So that's AM820, The Truth, and or www.hotm.tv. Want to really learn the Bible and what it's really all about? Join us at campus. That's Christian Assemblies meeting to prayerfully understand Scripture. That's an acronym for campus which is now underway somewhere near you if you live in Salt Lake City, north in Utah. When? Sunday mornings at the University of Utah from 9.15 to 10.15 a.m., one hour long, all the meetings. Then at the same time, every Sunday night from 7 to 8 p.m. only, we meet uh, simultaneously at three separate locations, at the U of U, at Weber State, and at Utah State. Use it as a supplement to your own regular church attendance if you'd like, or as your own church if you aren't going to one. We go verse by verse through the Bible. We're just finishing up the book of Matthew and come uh, 2009. We are going to start with the book of John, verse by verse, all the way through. It took us over 65 weeks to get through Matthew. It'll probably take us the same for John. All are welcome. And listen, you guys who haven't been to, the, been to church in years, get off your tukuses and go to church and and if you just want to call campus church fine we pray there we study the scripture we fellowship come join us it really isn't church wear what you want it lasts an hour you'll really learn something jeez so uh calvarycampus.com for more information i was a born-again mormon moving toward christian authenticity Pick it up at one of these fine literary establishments, utlm.org, or in the bookstore itself, Oasis Books in Logan, Christian Gift and Bible in Sandy, New Life Books in Layton, Sam Weller's Downtown Salt Lake, Salt Lake City Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa Calvary Chapel, Dolly's Books in Park City, Gift to Grace uh, Bible in Springville, and of course at www.bornagainmormon.com. We received... A half a dozen calls and emails about my stance and position on the once saved, always saved doctrine. Seems like put quite a bee in your bonnet on that one, huh? Eh? Well, let's sit back, take a little hit of oxygen, and see if we can reason this out again quickly. On the one hand, we seem to have people who have to see everything in completely black or completely white terms, or they just can't get along in life. And then we have uh, people who just take the word of God and don't care what it says and just believe whatever the heck they want. Is there a reasonable platform with which to address this? Well, 
let me make an attempt one more time so that we can reason together through this. I am a huge promoter of the peace and assurance that comes with receiving Jesus by faith and eternal salvation, which is not a conditional state. It's one of the things that really helped me when I left Mormonism is when I came to know of the certainty and the assurity that I had in my salvation by my faith in Him who was righteous enough to give it to me, knowing I never would be. We are not saved, because we're not saved by any meritorious action or our righteous acts, we can't be unsaved by our unrighteous actions or our unrighteous acts. Do you got that? Our salvation is based on His righteousness and not our own. At the same time, sorry, I have a little bit of a cold. I am convinced that God will not force anyone to remain where they don't want to remain. Therefore, anyone and everyone has the right to walk away from their salvation if they choose. Now, this is really important. This is something that might be a little disturbing, too. When and if a person actually walks away from their salvation, it is a final and permanent action. Okay? Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says, listen to the wording. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him in open shame. The description is not a description of someone who messes up or turns from holy living or becomes a carnal Christian or has a, develops a difficulty with alcoholism or commits egregious sin. That is not what it's saying there. All of us, the reason why is because all of us continue to commit sin one way or another as believers. Allow a brief analogy. Let's say that there's a hundred story high high rise built squarely in the middle of one acre of land, surrounded by a high brick wall. You have that? High brick wall, one acre of land, 100-story high rise. All the Christians in the world live in this high rise, and they mull about inside and on the grounds below within the wall. Access and entrance into the high rise is by being blown up by a gale force wind and taken to the hundredth story, not by your own power. That's how you enter the building. It's a supernatural event. Anyone who has been swept up to the roof of that high rise is a Christian. They are put there. They are a Christian. Now, there's a door on the roof that you can enter and go down and, and, and exist in that high rise. And we could liken that to baptism. And maybe living inside of that high-rise, you could liken it to being active or in your church or being really uh, faithful in your walk or really being sanctified as a Christian. But when God comes to take his church, everyone who has ever been lifted up to that roof by that spirit, regardless of whether they have entered the door, taken up residence inside, or are mulling around on the grounds outside, are going to be taken up. On the grounds, I say, how did they get on the grounds? Well, let's say there are people who are blown up to the top of that roof and they start goofing around and they slip off and they fall a hundred stories down to the ground. And they are laying there. Were they elevated up to the top? Yes, they were. Uh, are they still on high-rise ground called Christianity? Yes, they are. They might be busted up a little bit, but they're still there. Will they be received by God? Absolutely. Okay? What if they want to get back into the building again? Well, part of the analogy is when someone slips and falls or even purposely jumps off that roof, God always has a rope going all the way down that they can grab and get pulled back up and come back into that high rise again. Always, if they choose to do that. Well, everyone who goes overboard has that rope and they have that access. But there appears to be some, for whatever reason, who purposefully leap off the building. 
And even that is okay because like all Christians, they were carried to the roof by the wind. And even though they jumped off, they're still on Christian's ground below. But sometimes these types, once they land, they crawl away from that building bleeding and bruised. They want to get off the property called Christ. All right. They want nothing to do with it. In fact, they hate that property. They loathe that property. They mock that building, that land, that wall. When the rope is extended down to them, they reach up with a knife as high as they can and they cut it. And then they fall back to the ground and they can never reach that rope again. And then they crawl all the way to the wall and they somehow get themselves over the wall and on the other side and they leave it completely. Now you would say, who would do this? Well, we know that Satan did it. He was in the presence of God and because of his own pride, he bailed out from there, was cast out actually. We know Judas did it. I have seen people on the internet who were pastors, supposedly faithful believing pastors, who are now confirmed, dogmatic, seething atheists who now attack him. You cannot tell me once saved, always saved applies to these situations. So once you are an apostate, and remember you're apostate, which means you fell away, once you have truly fallen away, in the analogy I used, you are gone. You will not come back. It's not a matter of, wow, I really blew it. Oh, no, that's not the tenuousness we're talking about. So, but here's the good news. I don't know, I know very, very, very few people who would ever want to do this. So salvation is secure. It is a place of peace. It is a place of rest. And because you're making mistakes or because you really blow it in your life, that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about willfully turning, crawling, walking away, and then turning against what it is. I think scripture supports that position, and that's why I don't preach once saved, always saved. Before we go into part two of the Word of Wisdom tonight, I want to remind you of something. Joseph Smith died at the age of 38. People today hail his name as a true and living prophet. Before he died, Joseph Smith taught openly and frankly that he had personally met God the Father, Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, Peter, James, John, Moses, Elijah, Michael the Archangel, who was really Adam according to LDS doctrine, Elias, Book of Mormon characters, Nephi, Moroni, Mormon, and then there's Raphael, and I think there's a few others that I've missed. Joseph Smith, whose name they hail, claimed he found golden plates buried in a hill that were near his home, where his parents moved. And this hill was one of the largest battlegrounds to ever take place in human history. Largest. Steel swords, helmets, shields, bones. Not there. He claimed to be able to look into a magic stone that he'd put in a hat, and this stone would tell him how to translate these plates he said he found in that hill. Joseph convinced people that after translating these secret plates using that stone, that he could also find buried treasure in the earth using that same stone. The story Joseph Smith said he translated from these golden plates was about an ancient civilization that are of a people who arrived in the Americas from Jerusalem around 600 BC. Unlike the Bible, there is no evidence anywhere of this civilization. Joseph was given six brass plates, which were supposedly found in the earth near a place called Kinderhook, Illinois. These plates were brought to him by some men who wanted to see if he would authenticate them by looking at them and translating them. He did! And what did he say was recorded on those brass plates? According to History of the Church, volume 5, page 372, they gave him these plates and Joseph said, I have translated a portion of them and find they contain the history of a person with whom they were found. He was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth, end quote. What has come to be called the Kinderhook plates were a complete fraud. They were manufactured by men in Joseph Smith's day who brought them to him and wanted to see what he would say about them. Do you ever hear that taught in Sunday school? 
Egyptian papyri were brought to Joseph Smith. What did he say? He said they contained the writings of Abraham. These papyri uh, writings have be been proven to be nothing of the sort. Joseph Smith claimed and claimed and proclaimed and asserted and prophesied and assured and reassured everyone that he has met, that he could see, that he could translate, that he could prophesy, and millions of people today, good people, well-meaning people, have bought into these deceptions. I know this sounds like anti-Mormon propaganda. Joseph Smith even suggested that the moon was inhabited. In his day and age, who could prove him wrong? Brigham Young carried that tradition on. In fact, he bested Joseph Smith and said not only the moon, but the sun was inhabited. Joseph Smith went on to describe what the people looked like. Quakers, I think he said, who wore certain Quakerish uniforms there on the moon. Isn't it time you just wake up? Isn't it time you stand for Jesus Christ alone and his word, which is supported by evidence and fact everywhere? Isn't it time you say, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life more money, more devotion, more time, uh, the life that God has given to me, following a man in his fraudulent claims so blindly? Isn't it time you check these things out for yourself with your own eyes, not believing me, not believing those leaders, go to www.utlm.org and prove me wrong. And with that, let's have a prayer. <coughs> Dear Lord, we love you and we thank you. We praise you. We're grateful for life itself. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the station. Pray for the, our audience here, our audience, our viewing audience at home that the message I uh, am able to give according to your ways will sink in and have purpose in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we heard part one of the Word of Wisdom where we talked about the health movements that were popular in America, which preceded and surrounded Joseph Smith before he dictated what's called the Word of Wisdom, which is the health code for the Mormons today. We also gave some historical background uh, to what led to the revelation, where the revelation happened, when it happened, and how he received it. Tonight we're going to look at how committed Joseph Smith himself was to his own word of wisdom and what it means uh, and what measures the LDS Church has taken to deceive its people from the facts of its history regarding the word of wisdom. So how committed was Joseph Smith personally to the word of wisdom and how has the word of wisdom been enforced? Um, LDS writer John L. Stewart wrote a book called Joseph Smith the Prophet. On page 90 of this book, he presents a very typical representation of Joseph Smith to the reader, and he says, The prophet himself carefully observed the word of wisdom and insisted upon its observance by other men in high position, end quote. These types of characterizations are the bread and butter of LDS Sunday School teachings because they serve up the myth of Joseph Smith and they keep it alive at the same time creating this false role model for the believers to follow. LDS scholar Hugh Nibley in his book Sounding Brass once wrote, Where is the evidence Joseph Smith drank alcohol? Statements like this are especially evil because when they come across the eyes uh, of the LDS believers that a respected LDS scholar asked that type of question, they automatically assume he wouldn't ask the question if evidence existed. So they don't even search. It's just not so. Prior to the word of wisdom revelation, Joseph Smith certainly consumed alcohol. You can read about it in History of the Church, Volume 2, page 26. But this is permissible and not hypocritical in the least. I would suppose that most people in that day would take a nip here and there. It was probably very normative. But did Joseph Smith drink or approve of drinking alcohol after 1833 when the word of wisdom came forth? Absolutely. On May 2nd, 1843, that's 10 years later after the word of wisdom revelation came out of his mouth. You can read in Joseph Smith's History of the Church, Volume 5, page 380, that Joseph had a glass of wine with one sister, Janetta Richards, who, if memory serves, ended up as one of his secret plural wives. That wine really got that guy going, didn't it? 
In January 1836, Joseph Smith's History of the Church, Volume 2, page 369 says, We then partook of some refreshments, and our hearts were made glad with the fruit of the vine. That's the way they wrote that they drank wine. Joseph Smith's History of the Church, Volume 2, page 378 says, Joseph Smith said, Elders Orson Hyde, Lucas Johnson, and Warren Parrish then presented the presidency with three servers of glasses filled with wine to bless. And it, filled, and it fell to my lot to attend to this duty, which I cheerfully discharged. It was then passed round in order, then the cake in the same order, and suffice it to say, our hearts were made glad while partaking of the bounty of earth, which was presented until we had taken our fill. We know Joseph Smith passed an ordinance in Nauvoo uh, about allowing the right to sell alcohol within the city limits, and then he established a bar in his own house, which Porter Rockwell ran. When Emma, old Emma, good old Emma, she knew how to enforce that word of wisdom, shut, then she protested, and so he shut it down. Volume 6, page 616 of Joseph Smith's history says, this is even the day that Joseph Smith died. The day that he died, history of the church reveals that the prophet of God, who these books say never touched alcohol, consumed it after the word of wisdom was delivered. Listen to this, what it says. Before the jailer came in, his boy brought in some water and the, said the guard wanted some wine. Joseph gave Dr. Richards $2 to give the guard, but the guard said it was enough and would take no more. The guard immediately sent for a bottle of wine, pipes, and two small papers of tobacco, and one of the guards brought them into the jail soon after the jailer went out. Dr. Richards uncorked the bottle and presented a glass to Joseph, who tasted as Brother Taylor and the doctor, and the bottle was then given to the guard, who turned to go out. History of the Church, Volume 6, page 616. The very day of his death, he consumed alcohol. In a Brigham Young University master's thesis, Joseph Smith as administrator, May 1969, page 161, reread that Joseph Smith rode through the streets of Nauvoo smoking a cigar. Uh, so tobacco wasn't forbidden from his lips either after the word of wisdom. Juanita Brooks reported that wine was amply used during the construction of the Nauvoo Temple. And speaking of temples, just a few days ago, Truman Madsen on KBYU did a show uh, about what they call the Mormon Day of Pentecost. And how they present this is in the Kirtland Temple, the LDS portray this event that the, the saints went into this temple and the spirit fell upon them and all kinds of miraculous things happened on this supposed day of Pentecost, which were very similar to what happened in the book of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell upon Peter and the apostles and 3,000 were saved. Joseph Smith and the Mormons at Kirtland had been waiting for their own spiritual Pentecost, and the LD, as the LDS put it, they received it there in the Kirtland Temple that evening. What the LDS don't report, they report that the spirit like tongues of fire happened, that there were miraculous uh, pronouncements, that there was just this Holy Spirit invitation. What they don't report is how much alcohol was consumed prior to this blessed event. In fact, there's much speculation about Joseph wanting everybody to drink up as much as they could so that they would have a greater spiritual experience. This is from Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, page 216. Apostle George A. Smith referenced the drunken party at the Kirtland Endowment. Then on Sunday, November 21st, Brother Milo Andres spoke of blessings and the power of God manifested in the Kirtland Temple. He said he once asked the prophet why he, Milo, did not feel the power that was spoken of as the power that was felt at the day of Pentecost. When we had fasted for 24 hours and partaken of the Lord's Supper, namely a piece of bread as big as and double your fist and half a pint of wine in the temple, I was there and saw the Holy Ghost descend upon the heads of those like cloven tongues of fire. Isaac Aldrich stated, quote, My brother Hazen Aldrich, who was the president of the 70s, told me the temple was dedicated, was dedicated, a barrel of wine was used, and they had a drunken powwow. 
There are many references to wine being there in abundance in the Kirtland Temple when after everybody had drunk or drank as much as they wanted, then this, this spiritual manifestation began to happen and they call this the day of Pentecost. Um, Myth-making, propaganda to keep you believing the story. Before we go to the phones, let me give you uh, a few more examples of the junk the brethren have pulled to keep people in the dark about the reality of the history. Um, in the history of the church, Joseph Smith asked Brother Markham to get a pipe and some tobacco for the Apostle Willard Richards. These words have been replaced with the word medicine in recent editions of the history of the church. So where it once said tobacco and a pipe, they replaced it with the word medicine. All right. At another time, Joseph Smith related that he gave some of the brethren a couple of dollars with directions to replenish their supply of whiskey. In modern editions of History of the Church, 23 words have been deleted from this reference to cover up the fact that Joseph Smith encouraged the brethren to disobey his word of wisdom. In the third instance, uh, Joseph Smith frankly admitted that he had a glass of beer at Mosser's. That's the big famous line that, that shows that Joseph drank beer. These words have been omitted in recent editions of History of the Church. So where the facts are there, they simply will remove them, and then as they continue to edit and re-edit, and, and they, they try to present these histories for people now, this is the history of Joseph Smith, they teach it, they cut this stuff out or they edit it so you never know the truth. It's very, very disturbing. What does it say to you when, re when you read that a supposed revelation from God to Joseph and Joseph doesn't follow God's advice? Do you think Joseph really received such a revelation, or do you think it was just Emma whispering in his ear? What does it say to you in one of the most historical moments of Mormon spiritual history, the Kirtland Pentecost, uh, was due to great amounts of alcohol consumed there in the temple, even after the word of wisdom was given? What does it say to you when the church you accept alters the historical record? Do you really want to stand up and defend something and someone and an institution that lies to you? If they told the truth, then and now, far be it from me to criticize them. If they continue to tell the truth, we wouldn't have a show. But they don't. And so when they lie, that means they are trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Or they think themselves so good that they need to protect you from the truth. Either way, it's a tremendous insult. Again, I think the word of wisdom is probably great advice, but that's all it is. Walk into any uh, major chain bookstore and you will find great advice on what to eat, what to drink, and what to avoid. It's pretty simple stuff. But Joseph presented his advice as a direct revelation from God, and then he had the audacity, the mockery, to not even follow it. What does that say about him and his supposed revelatory claims? We're going to go to the phones when we come back after this brief break. Welcome back. Just got back from having a beer at Mosser's. What do you think about that? I mean, doesn't that disturb you at all? Uh, if you're watching there in the, in the quiet of your home, if you're eldest, doesn't that bother you at all? I mean, it certainly bothers me. I, I, I don't get it at all. Okay, we are going to the phones, 801-973-8820, 801-973-8820. TV20. 
Well, we want first-time callers uh, if possible. We would love LDS callers if at all possible. Please turn down your TV sets because uh, we need those down for you to be able to communicate with me right. And if you have a comment or a question, please make it as concise as possible so we can get to it, address it, and move on to other callers. Uh, again, lines are full. If you call and the lines are full and you get a recording, just keep trying back. You'll get through. Uh, nothing up on the screen. So I don't have any emails. I'll just read you some more interesting quotes. In a statement from February 27th, 1885, Miss Alfred Morley made this comment about the temple ceremony that what they call the day of Pentecost, Kirtland, Ohio. Quote, I have heard many Mormons who attended the dedication or endowment of the tape or the, of the temple say that very many became drunk. The Mormon leaders would stand up to prophesy and were so drunk they could not get, get it out and would call for another drink. Over a barrel of liquor was used at the service. Um, so that's another quote. And finally, uh, there was a LDS apologist who wrote, her name was F.L. Stewart, I think it's a she, that Joseph drank wine as a sacrament and that the custom is no longer practiced at baptisms and weddings and water is now used in the place of wine for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Uh, F.L. Stewart's attempt to explain away Joseph Smith's disregard for the word of wisdom cannot be taken seriously. So what they did was they took one instance of Joseph Smith uh, drinking and they justified it saying Joseph Smith would only drink wine when it was part of communion or their sacrament. But that doesn't explain the glass of wine he had with Janetta Richards, which had nothing to do with a sacrament, or his beer at Mosser's, which had nothing to do with a sacrament, or the wine that they drank in Carthage Jail, which had nothing to do uh, with a sacrament. And it doesn't justify him smoking a cigar while tra traipsing through the city of Nauvoo. So uh, every justification they give for Joseph Smith's consumption of alcohol, while to me is, it doesn't matter, it only matters that he said God said don't do it, and he did. Bob in Salt Lake City on line two. Bob, you are on. Bob, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Um, I was just wondering, did, um, are you familiar that the uh, early saints considered mild drinks to be barley drinks such as beer? Yeah. Yeah, I, I am, and we're going to get to that uh, in a, we have two more weeks of Word of Wisdom, but what else is a mild barley drink going to be, you know? And, uh, but I am under, I am under uh, the impression it was beer. The problem is, is why do they eliminate that Joseph Smith had a beer at Mosser's? If beer was, if they won't, you can't drink beer now and get into the temple. So in essence, Joseph Smith could be here in town right now and couldn't get a temple recommend because he would have had a beer over at Mosser's. So we're gonna talk about how, what the Word of Wisdom meant to the Mormons at one time, and how it came, by, not by way of a commandment, but how it's been imposed today as a great commandment in which they have to follow. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. Hey, thanks for the call. Uh -huh. Okay, bye. We're going to Scott in Bountiful. Scott, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Um I was wondering if uh, you knew anything about after the Mormons came to Utah, if they were still consuming alcohol, because I heard that Porter Rockwell actually had a saloon out, out on the highway. I just wonder if you knew anything about after they came to Utah. Yeah, and Scott, we're going to cover more and more of that uh, again in the following weeks as we get into how the Word of Wisdom uh, morphed over time. But Brigham Young uh, said, hey, look it, instead of, buying the wine from Gentiles, let's create our own. You know, everything to him was economics. Had nothing to do with whether you should drink it or not. And I've heard Porter Rockwell too. I have to check with Sandra Tanner's resources and things and see what they have to say about Porter Rockwell having a bar. But there's plenty of information about how it used to be this, just this kind of thing that they tried to live. And it's become, as the church has become more clerical and in their ways, and now it's completely forbidden so that you can't receive salvation if you drink a cup of tea. You can't receive <laughs> salvation. So it's such a hideous thing. But yeah, I have heard that, and we'll cover that in more depth as we move along. We've got the operators oh. moving up. 
Okay, thanks, John. I'll keep watching for that. Thank you. All right, Scott, thanks. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, lines are full. Joanne. Joanne, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Yes. I'd like to know if you feel any different by not wearing your garments for the LDS church. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know what? When I, when I first took them off, uh-huh. I did. Absolutely. I mean, it would be like uh, being used to wearing a beard and then shaving, you know? You, you dive in a pool and it feels different. And so you have that tactile difference, and it is a strange thing. And so obviously it plays right into, oh, gosh, you know, I'm naked and, and uh, I'm doing something wrong. And, and they build that into you when they tell you never, ever, ever take them off. So, yeah, I had that experience, but I'll tell you now, I couldn't imagine putting them back on, you know, uh, not at all. But, yes, at, at first it was difficult. Oh, okay. How about why? Why do you ask? Uh, well, I was just curious to know about people wearing garments and, and taking them off. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, if you can imagine what it would be like, you learn your whole life you're supposed to wear them right. all day and night, and then you take them off. It, there's a lot of guilt built in there, and that's why the Mormons get that C word applied to them a lot, cult, because they uh, those type of things really play with somebody's head. Okay. All right. Thanks that's so much. good. Thanks so much for the call, Joanne. Okay, thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay, we have a line that's blinking here. You're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? Hey, is it Sean? It is. Okay. Hi. Uh, you have a question? You're about to push your button. <laughs> what? What? Okay. Uh, my name is Marie. Hi, Marie. Okay. This is my question, Sean. Um, I've been a Christian for many, many years. Okay. And um, I've studied all kinds of religions. I'm 55. I've been around the block, lived in California, studied the Kabbalah, uh, many numerous things. And um, But basically, my life has been, been grounded in checking all those with Christian, the Christian... The, the Bible okay. and the Christian belief. So, this is this is one of the problems that I've had with the Bible. Is um, it, what I find interesting is if you do not accept the Lord, that you're screwed, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and we're talking about centuries, centuries, and people from all over the world that if they do not hear the gospel. They're gone, okay? And so that has been a quandary for me. And when I, I am LDS now, I have had a problem with it since 87. Uh-huh. I've been going, fluctuating back and forth. You know, I, I pull out my scriptures and I go, I just can't get through this like a Mormon, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But this is the deal. Um, it answers the question by going to the temple and doing work for the dead, but still I'm, I, I, I just don't get it. I well, just don't get it. Marie, listen to a couple things. We did a show, uh, have you been watching our show long? Off and on, I'm lucky enough to catch you. <laughs> we, uh, we did a show on how uh, it's a pernicious Christian teaching that the uh, savage or the child who dies, uh, who doesn't hear the gospel, uh, that they go directly to hell. The, the, the Lord reveals himself in many ways. Children are saved by the blood of Christ and the grace. And, right. and so the word is written on people's hearts. The word is written on nature. His laws and his existence is all around. So people have different avenues by which to come to know him. So that thing that puzzled you that Joseph Smith provided an answer for vicarious temple work to save people was never an issue. It was just taught sometimes in the wrong way. Exactly. Okay. The other thing is um, Joseph Smith came from a family of universalists. A salesmith and his father, Joseph Smith Sr., were universalists. They believed that not one person would go to hell. 
Joseph was then in between his mother, who was a very strong uh, Christian believer, and his father's universalism. And he had this thing, this going on in his life. He made it come together by having people saved through these different means, and then everybody gets it. Then he also eliminated hell by making, by making the worst part where adulterers, liars, murderers go, a heaven. And so yeah. he answered the universalist way. Yeah. You can't get away from the word, Marie. Okay, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm just asking. Oh. What, where scripturally, after all these years that I have traveled down this boat, and Isaiah is very easy for me to read and all this stuff, where everybody's mixed up, but where... What is the redemption for these people that are in Darfur or way back? My son's a Green Beret, and I know people have not had the opportunity all over the world to hear the gospel. Right. So when they die, they don't have a, a chance to accept Christ. They've never been taught Christ. Do you okay. believe in, a, in, a, in a, a merciful God? I do. That's what my problem is. Why is it a problem? If merciful, then, <laughs> then what happens to these people that die and never hear the gospel? Well, the way I've been taught as a Christian, when I was taught for years as a Christian, was that if you didn't hear it, you didn't accept it, you're going to hell. Yeah, and you know what? That teaching is just uh, a horrible teaching, and I don't believe that it can be substantiated. C.S. Lewis didn't believe that it could be substantiated by the Bible. It's it's a teaching of man, but if you okay. believe in a merciful Great. God, okay. So what happens to them? Well, uh, I don't know what happens to them. That's my point. It's not our, it's not our job to work it out, right? No, it's our job to trust <laughs> the Lord. Exactly. Okay. Who, who is love? <laughs> yeah. And okay. just. Yeah. All right. Good call. Thank you so much. Hey, I appreciate your time and your efforts, and I am looking forward to coming to see you. Oh, good. Look forward to it. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you so okay. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Deborah in Taylorsville on line two. Deborah, you're on Heart of the Matter. Okay. How you doing? I'm fine. You're on the air. Okay. I'm calling because... I've heard some things that I had never heard before about the beer and all that. Uh -huh. But I think, to be fair, you should also cover the fact that in the scriptures it says that the wine is for assembling themselves together to offer up the sacraments. And, but it should be wine of the grape of the vine of their own make. So it was always intended that as long as they made it themselves that it was okay. And I agree that you what you said that in the beginning it was just a suggestion yeah. and now it's more a commandment and that's true but I think it, to be fair you should also point out that it's always been okay as long as they make the wine themselves oh so you're saying that uh, it was okay in Joseph Smith's but he says in the word of wisdom that wine is not for man wine or strong well, drink well what I'm reading from section 89 which is where the word of wisdom is given in the yeah. scriptures yeah that inasmuch as any man drinketh wine or strong drink among you, behold, it is not good, neither meat in the sight of your father, only in assembling yourselves together to offer up your sacraments before him. Right. And then the next verse, verse 6, And behold, this should be wine, yea, pure wine of the grape of the vine of your own make. Okay, that, that, I understand that. I agree with that. We read the Word of Wisdom last week. But the problem I have, Deborah, is that Joseph Smith consumed wine when it was not one of his own make, and two, when it was not a sacrament or communion. He's consumed it socially. Yeah, but, you know, did it say that in the history of the church, that when they went and brought the bottle, it was not of their own make? Did they go buy it from the local liquor store then? Is that what you're saying? Well, to the jailer, that when they were, when they were in jail, they gave him some money and said, go get us a bottle of wine. In another instance... Uh, he drank, I think it was with that Janetta woman, I believe that was a bottle of wine that was brought from England. Yeah, I don't know about that, but, and that's what I'm saying, I'm not disagreeing with what yeah. you said, because I haven't read these other articles that you refer to, so what I haven't do you, read the old history of the church, but I just said, to be fair, 
you should point out that even in the Mormon scriptures today, it's okay as long as the wine is of their own name. Okay, but uh, I, I know what you're saying, Deborah, but let me ask you, can Mormons today drink wine of their own make? Yes, if that's my understanding. So if I make my own wine, I can drink it if I'm an active Latter-day Saint and get into the temple? That's my understanding, yes. That is, I've been, that is I've had it offered to me by someone in the church who made it himself. Categorically incorrect. And if the, L, I mean, you may have some people who are like doing some fringy stuff, but I'll tell you right now, there's not a stake president or bishop or anybody higher in this church that would say, if you make it yourself, it's okay to drink it. Not one. Well, I have heard that, but since I don't drink myself, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Check Nobody that. Never had to counsel me about that. Go see your bishop and ask him that. Say I'm I'll starting to bottle, bottle some some wine and and I'm wondering if it's okay to drink it. I'll do that because according to the scriptures, it is okay. So. Okay, that sounds good. And we're going to continue on with what was okay then versus what's not okay today next week. Okay. Thanks, Deborah. You're welcome. Bye. God, God bless. Bye bye. Oh. <coughs> we're going to Tony. We're going to Tony in Provo. Tony, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, yes, I just have a, a question, or maybe in, <clears throat> in 1983, um, it was July 3rd, 1983, moved to Provo, Utah, never knew the place existed, it seemed like a nice town, so when me and my husband applied for work here, and I remember <clears throat> I was in nursing, and I remember calling LDS Homes, and they'd say, and you are LDS, no, they slammed the phone down. And I really? found that to be very, very strange. And wow. then, um, that, you know, I um, started working at the state hospital, met people that were LDS, and it was even stranger. But the people here believe in three heavens. I believe in one hell, one heaven, and one, and one God. Right. And they don't believe like that, and they're, they're very, very clicky. That's what I, I find it to be, not a town that's very, it's a very, very, it's like an occult. You know, uh -huh. because they still have polygamous, and I don't know why people worship a man, Brigham Young, that has 58 wives and 100 kids. Joseph Smith had about the same amount of wives. I mean, why did they have to have so many wives? I find that very strange, because Brigham Young, um, how do we know? We don't know if he had wives that are 13, 14, but yet in the state of Utah, you could get married at 14. Yeah. That was, and that's wrong. I mean, who's so really got the sense to marry somebody at 14 years old. He had one wife, but, you know, he had all these wives, but it, it sounds like a sixth scenario. Yeah, so you've been here since 83. You've stayed. Yeah. Well, I stayed because of, I love the mountains. It has nothing to do with the people. It has nothing to do with, with the money. Right. It was just, it's just the state. It's the mountains. It's the, people ask me that all the time, but as I've lived here longer, it's just, it's getting worse instead of better. And, and as I can see the the way the police department is, um, everything about it. People are very prejudiced here, very prejudiced. Wow. They want the revenue, but they don't, they don't. My godfather once from Indiana told me, how many husbands do you have and how much money do they steal from the Olympics? It's not a very good state. Wow. I don't, it's a good, it's a good, it's, I like the mountains, but as far as the people, I don't. Thank you so much, Tony. I appreciate your call. All right, thank you. God bless, bye-bye. We're going to Susan, first-time caller in Provo, Utah. Susan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Susan? 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 Susan! <laughs> Su Susan, are you there? Susan is not there. We're going to Douglas in Murray. Douglas, you're on Heart of the Matter. Is this Douglas who is... Douglas? Hello. Hello, Douglas. Is this Sean McCraney? It is. Sean, you know, with most of the doctrines of the Mormon Church, where we believe in things like Lucifer and Jesus being our elder brothers, the law of progression, eternal polygamy, and the uh, word of wisdom, where they broke it completely. Joseph had wives long before he announced it. They continued to live in polygamy. Occur up until uh, 1905, where they, uh, you know, finally were able to stop it a little bit. But, you know, I, everyone I ever would have loved on my wife's family, on my family, all four lines, they go back to the early days of the church in the 1830s. 
They came across the plains. There were millions and millions of people who were Mormons, and now there's 12 million members worldwide. And yet these doctrines that are scary, that they're frightening, that are unbiblical, you just you, you try and investigate and look into them to find the truth for yourself, and the church discourages you from ever doing that. They want you to read the Book of Mormon, pray to God, and get that warm and fuzzy feeling in your bosom. <laughs> Douglas, so always... A- every, everyone I would have ever loved to have held and, and, and talked to and been with my own family and posterity and progenitors, they will not be in heaven there waiting for me, Sean. Right. Douglas, no, always, great, always great to hear from you, my friend. Hey, I love you guys. Love I you too. The, the best, and, and this is one of your best shows. Thanks, Douglas. God bless yeah, you. I appreciate it. I love you guys. Have a good week. You too. Bye-bye. I was having a conversation with some dear friends yesterday, and we started talking. Actually, one of them was uh, on the mission with me, and we started talking about things that our mission presidents had said. And uh, I, I, we had two, the, the, the guy I was sitting there talking with, he and I had two mission presidents, and I'm going to tell you their names. One was Robert H. Danes, and one was Gary Bunker. And uh, Gary Bunker, uh, I love that man. I love him today. He's a, he's a wonderful man. Robert H. Danes, I want to give you a quote from that guy. And if you were in the Pennsylvania Harrisburg mission, Mormon or not, you call me and tell me that you've heard it because I know you did. He said, I would rather have you look at pornography than read anti-Mormon literature. A great quote, isn't it? Yeah, that is a direct quote. Robert H. Danes in the, in the LES mission, Pennsylvania Harrisburg, 1980-something. All right, we're going to Timothy in Santa Quinn. Timothy, <coughs> Timothy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, nice to hear you, Sean. Nice to hear uh, you. I'm, I'm uh, calling in response to uh, Marie. Okay. She was asking about what about these people that didn't ever hear about Jesus and everything. Okay. Uh, the reason I wanted to say is because uh, in Romans chapter 1, we're told that uh, God has re- revealed sufficiently about himself through nature and even in our own hearts that uh, everybody is without ex- excuse. We know that there is a God, and we could and ought to respond to him properly. Uh, positively. Right. And uh, if you put that together with James chapter 4, verse 8, okay. where it says, um, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Right. Uh, then we'd have to say that if a person uh, never hears about Jesus, it's because they never responded properly to that uh, light that God had given them in nature and in their own hearts, they did not respond properly because okay. if they had drawn near to God, and okay. He's available, they understood, they right. without excuse, okay. had they drawn near to God, uh-huh. it says He will draw near to them. Right, Timothy, Jesus, Timothy, I'm going to yes. disagree with you on this for the simple reason that uh, you, uh, what you're saying is that anybody who has ever lived on this earth from the ascension of Jesus Christ forward if they had had the right heart toward God and drawn near to Him, that they would have heard about Jesus. And I absolutely am going to reject that. And, and uh, I think that by drawing near to God, that is drawing near to Jesus. And uh, the name Jesus itself, I'm going, uh, uh, I understand the scripture, I understand what you're saying, but I, there is no way you're going to be able to say that somebody on a different continent before the gospel could ever get there who had a heart for God and drew, near, here, drew as near to him as they could in their heart but never heard Jesus uh, was their fault. Well, what I, what I would say is that God is uh, able to get the gospel to any person on the planet. Okay, I, I believe that too. To do that. I believe that too, Timothy. But God uses many uh, natural means. That's why uh, Jesus right. came during the Pax Romana when the roads were open and, and things. But still, 
There, you know, he, I, I take those Roman passages to say if somebody resonates to nature in their heart and they accept God with what they have been given, the blood of Jesus, by the grace of Jesus, is going to save them. Well, I think that it will, but I think that the means of that uh, the Bible says that that grace gets communicated to them is through the preaching of the, of the gospel. And that may be a human being that does it. It may not be that there is any human being that is able to do it, around the re- to, to do it. And at that point, I think God can, and, have, and actually we've, we find out later, has gotten the gospel communicated to people uh, by angels and others. So okay. I just I don't believe that God is so limited that uh, he can't get the gospel to anybody that doesn't that he wants to get to. I don't either. I don't either, but but I don't believe that he necessarily has to go through the avenues that we in our minds have uh, constructed that it has to go this certain way. Uh, for instance, there are people who say it has to be the name of Jesus. Okay, well, that's not even his name. So we got a problem right there. All right, well, so that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more of the, um, the essence of what you're saying. I agree with you is true. But the specifics we got to be very careful on. Well, that may, uh, maybe I could clarify what I'm saying then to say this, that uh, if, if a person... Uh, got to be quick. If, if a person knows and accepts the fact that uh, he has violated God's standards, and yep. that he cannot possibly make himself right with God, yep. and uh, turns in faith to God and says, somehow you are, I'm trusting you to take care of this situation. Okay. I can believe that God can regenerate him right there in the pond. So do I. And actually give him, well, and also at that time, give him right there by the direct revelation a knowledge of Jesus. Okay, okay. Uh, well, the word. you know, that's, that's your belief, uh, Tim, but it doesn't say that he can do that in Scripture. That's your belief. And, you know, it's a fine one. But I think we ought to err on the side of God's grace and love than on dogmatism about where the savage goes who possibly didn't hear the name of Jesus. We are out of time. i got to let you go. Uh, Lori and Logan, first-time caller, I'm sorry I couldn't get to you. That took on a little bit longer than we thought. Michelle, Monty, and Ogden, and Clinton, my apologies. Please call back first next week. We're going to continue on with the Word of Wisdom Part 3 and talk about it then. We'll see you here on Heart of the Matter. I'm going to pray. I'm gonna break my, I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage.
but let's talk about John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. There was a man of the Pharisees. He was of the separated ones. That's what the word Pharisee means. His name was Nicodemus. And look at this. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a teacher. And this man came to Jesus by night. He was uh, probably afraid to be seen with Christ. And he said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher which comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do.